Hello and welcome to the Tefauti podcast series. Hi to all of our listeners once again for the Tefauti podcast. Uh, I have my second interviewee with me, uh, a very good friend of mine actually, uh, Paolo Parazzi. And just to give you a bit of background uh, about Paolo, Paolo is like me, a third generation Kenyan who grew up on the coast of Kenya in Wutamu. He was always in touch with his conservation roots, with his mother, Nikki, running a turtle conservation project, which goes by the name of the Local Ocean Trust. Together with his business partner, Sam Stogdale, he set up uh, a business called Africa Born, which takes exclusive trips all over the African continent. Thanks very much, Christa. It's been great so to be So just to here. sort of kick us off, um, Paolo, I guess it's, you know, it goes without saying that the tourism industry has massively hit. But before we get into all of that, um, you've you've sort of been involved with it for 10 years or so within the exclusive safari area and going to remote destinations, as I alluded to. Uh, what have you learned most, I guess, about the natural world, which couldn't be more poignant as it is today? Yeah, so I think I think twofold. I think on a on a personal level, I guess the fact that, you know, you're continuously learning, uh, you know, again, as you said, I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to go to some extraordinary places and see some extraordinary things. But you know, every single day is different. Every time you're out there, you learn something new. And, and you know, the just all the, the wildlife in itself is is so fascinating in, in, and, and constantly changing uh, throughout Africa and the effect that we have on, on, on wildlife and, and the environment. Um, you know, to give you an example, somewhere like maybe northern Kenya, which has got sort of a marginal rainfall area, you know, it's a very delicate ecosystem and you know if if we overgraze areas and there's too much livestock on there um you know the effect on that on for you know the 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 bigger fauna such as you know a zebra or whatever it may be you know they don't have enough grass to eat or water to to go to um and then also you know once that grass has been eaten then you know the overgrazing that happens. Uh, sorry, the the uh, soil erosion that happens as a result once the the rain comes through and all the nutrients gets wiped off there, it can turn into deserts super quickly. So, yeah, I guess for me it's 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 been the sort of uh, and also I guess seeing how even even from a distance, you know, you can have a great effect on on an ecosystem even from a while away. So, for instance, in the Maasai Mara, the Mao escarpment. Is, is a sort of watershed which a lot of the water from um, the Mara River is sourced from. You know, that's miles and miles away from the Mara and from deforestation on there has resulted in really low water levels in the Mara River, which is miles and miles away. So even indirectly, you know, the Mara ecosystem could be a pristine environment, but indirectly deforestation a long way away has caused massive destruction and, uh, and that can directly affect one of the sort of last remaining wilderness areas on the planet so yeah i guess the for me it's it's really been just how um fragile it tends to be a bit of a knock-on sort of effect doesn't it sort of you say the grazing by certain tribal communities that we that we have within the kenya um tribes here tend to sort of have uh you know desertification some of the stuff you you sort of alluded to actually coincidentally one of the one of the projects that tefauti's looking to do is a sand dam uh, in Lysamis up in the north, both for community and wildlife uh, in those remote locations which uh, suffer a lot of runoff and don't actually hold much water. 
in those locations. So absolutely couldn't agree with more. There's there's so many um, little intricate issues that sort of knock on and become bigger natural world issues uh, as we go. Uh, and t- t- talking about that, I guess um, it would be remiss of me not to sort of point out uh, that a lot of our listeners, listeners here will be all too aware of the current climate uh, for tourism operators. And it sort of hit the news a fair amount, which I'm sure you, you're very aware of, Paolo, in the nature of what you do. Can you give us some of your thoughts about you know, the COVID, COVID pandemic and how it's obviously affected the industry that, that you're a part of? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's been pretty devastating to the industry as a whole. And I think twofold, again, from a, I guess, a, a human perspective, the fact that, you know, a lot of these communities are rely on tourism, whether it's through directly being employed in lodges or camps or safari companies um, to, you know, a lot of people are, the, you know, tourism might be the, the only sort of breadwinner within them or the person working within the uh, tourism organization might be the only breadwinner within um, the family. And so the knock-on effect within the communities is, is massive. Um, so, that, that is a real concern. Um, and then also on a conservation level, you know, a lot of these uh, conservancies, national parks, reserves, whatever it may be, the, the main source of funding comes through tourism. And so without that tourism, um, you know, the, the money to pay for ranges or, or anti-poaching efforts or whatever it may be is lost. So, yeah, again, the knock-on effect of that is is huge. And so it's going to be, an, you know, it's going to be a long one to get out of this. And a lot of people are trying to think of buying on tourism in order to fund these places. But the reality is, is that without tourism, um, it'll be very difficult for these areas to survive. So, you know, the quicker tourism comes back, the better, really. Uh, Sam and I specialize in sort of uh, high-end, privately guided safaris around Africa. We also are partner shareholders of, a, of another, well, the oldest continuously running safari company in the world called Karandani. Um, the original Karandani, which is a mobile outfitter. So we specialize in putting up mobile camps uh, throughout wilderness areas around Kenya in particular. And yeah, you know, we've, we're have we very lucky in, in the sense that our clientele generally are, are pretty wealthy. And so we get to um, go to, you know, they've got the budget to go to places and, and see things which ordinarily one, one wouldn't necessarily have access to. And so in that, in that side of things, we're, we're extremely lucky. Um, we, in particular, primarily um, focus on Kenya, although uh, we've, we run trips throughout Africa. We've actually, um, in, you know, in, the, in a year like this, it's been... Yeah, you alluded to the effects that it actually has on, on, on Kenya as a whole and how many people individually and collectively rely on it. But I guess as a continent uh, as well, we, we have... So many things that rely a huge amount of our GDP uh, relies on on the tourism industry operating with our with our wildlife and some of the amazing things that we're lucky enough to have on a continent that we call home. Um, I guess a question I, around um, you know predictability and and it's so difficult at the moment because so many there seems to be so many questions and things that just keep being thrown at us in 2020. God knows why. Um, if you're a guessing man. What would you? What would be your thoughts about you know tourism returning and sort of um, and how how you know if somebody was planning a trip, what what's kind of realistic through what your you know your sort of next year or or, or eighteen month period? Yeah, so I mean, I, again, I think t- tourism will only really come back on online fully. Um, I guess when when the sort of virus is under control. I mean, there there are a lot of sort of. Uh, 
models going around and forecasts going around as to when tourism will sort of come back online to what it was before. But I, I think also it's important to look at the different types of tourism. You know, we're lucky because we specialize in sort of more private groups, um, exclusive groups traveling as a unit to to sort of wilderness areas. And, you know, that that is a lot safer when you're looking at it from a virus perspective in terms of, uh, you know, not being in a sort of mass tourism setting where there's lots of people in in a, in a in a big hotel or anything like that so i think the 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 shape of tourism may may change in and and it being more about more sort of small exclusive travel rather than it being about mass tourism which to be honest you know you can delve quite deep into the the pros and cons of that dear got postponed to next year and so everybody's year next year is looking really good at the moment but you know, whether people will travel will be subject to whether, um, you know, this people can travel with, with everything going on with the virus. But yeah, we're, we're sort of confident that I think we'll, we're quite lucky from our, for own, from our own perspective, because, you know, our clients are used to travel and they're, they're pretty excited about getting back and out there and traveling again. And they certainly have the means to. Um, but yeah, it's just making sure that we can do it in a safe and responsible way. Um, but it's it's going to be a long road. There's no doubt about it. And there's uh, the tourism. I think the tourism industry will certainly change, and um, you know, hopefully, we can we can change it, change some things for the better. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. We're we're hoping that in the next couple of years, we'll we'll be back on track. Yeah, and I guess your point uh, about environmental impact is 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 so important. You've pointed out already. You know, the Maasai Mara having been gone that going there since I was a kid where you didn't really see anybody at the uh, at the great migration and then now uh, you know there's hundreds of cars all lined up not this year obviously but you know subsequent years that I've been before and it's sort of like against experiential uh, side of it you know people don't want to be in and amongst thousands of people all at once um, but the product is so good so it's kind of trying to get that happy balance between both isn't it Paolo it's one of those things where you kind of you know, you, you want something where you feel like you're getting absolute value, but then also the experience has to be a, an element of exclusivity sort of makes people feel a bit more special. Right. And I think I think there's two things to, to, to consider here. One one is that, you know, you, you also don't want tourism to become an elitist thing. You know, it, it shouldn't just be accessible to the super wealthy. But I think there are ways around that and, and potentially, you know, obviously Kenyan should always have an access to it. But I think... You know, from an international travel point of view, you know, perhaps managing areas so that, um, you know, Masai Mara is a prime example. It 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 was it does get too busy during the season. So maybe um, actually a camp or lodge that that is small, and um, you're still getting a good deal on it. There's no reason why you can't do that. And there's so many places within Kenya or Africa that one can, can do that without staying in a, in you know a big big hotel. Yes, when there's clients around, uh, and you can't knock them for yeah. that. So. It's a catch-22, isn't it? There's livelihoods yeah. at stake and communities that we alluded to that rely on it. And then, of course, there is obviously the experience where we're, we're super keen to try and make anybody that comes to the African continent have a, have a great experience. You know, if you're lucky, you see the big five and, and all of those amazing things that, that we're kind of known for. But it's sort of how do you manage that accessibility around an element of restriction without mitigating, making it a class uh, thing or, or how, as you say, how affluent you are, it's it's it needs to be accessible to all, but but managed appropriately, and it's a very difficult equilibrium to get. 
Um, right. So, yeah, I guess that's sort of uh, going through a bit of the doom and gloom, which is unfortunately the current climate that we're in with uh, with COVID. But, you know, let's get back to the sort of reasons why Africa is what it is. Hey, Paolo, it's one of those things where you have some of the most incredible encounters and journeys and and having these this ability through what you do with Africa Born and, and, and Curran Downey to give these people these exclusive experiences just give us some sort of idea as to, you know, some of those amazing encounters um, that you've been lucky enough to experience with some of your clients. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, there are, to be honest, there are too many to, to sort of name because on every trip, we're so lucky with the kind of things that we, we get to see and do. But I think there are a few things and I'll, I'll name a few here, which to me just sort of are sort of moments where I've had to almost pinch myself and say, you know, this is, I can't even believe that I'm, you know, so lucky to be able to experience this. And I think for one is the wildebeest migration in its full force is just something to behold. The sort of the sight, the sound, the smell, just everything. It's just an incredible um, thing to to experience and, and just everything that comes along with that, the, you know, the predators and everything surrounding it is just, is just phenomenal. I think, and especially now with, you know, everything going on and the poaching and, and all of that, uh, mm. the big elephant that Arbo and um, sort of Arbo and Baselli ecosystem are known for, getting to experience and spend time with some of those 100-pound elephant, those sort of super tuskers with um, the massive tusks uh, is is incredible. I mean, they're just such graceful and intelligent animals just to experience, you know, there's so few of them left on the planet. It, it really is just an incredible experience. Uh, I think seeing the Saguta Valley, Lake Takana, and especially for the first time, I, first time I did a helicopter safari up there. Um, I, I didn't even know places like that existed, let alone in, in, in Kenya, somewhere that I was sort of born and raised. And so to, to see places like that, that are completely untouched and again it's not so much up there about the wildlife it's it's all about the scenery and and the cultures too you know seeing the harsh landscapes and seeing where people have lived for millennia and continue to live is is it's crazy to imagine that people still live in those places and and live happily you know and and they they are such incredible people and you know a lot can be learned from them so the cultural side of things actually is, is something that, you know, in particular, Kenya is very fortunate still to have. You know, a lot of our pastoralist nomad tribes, whether it's Maasai, the Samburu or anyone else like that in northern Kenya, getting to spend time with them is also incredible. And seeing, again, seeing their way of life, which has remained largely unchanged. And as I said, a lot of lessons to be learned for, for the way they live their life and, and how simple it is on a material level, but how... Um, you know how incredible it is from a wholesome point perspective and, and how they need very little to live and, and my best whale encounters just just off Watamu here uh we had some incredible humpback whale action and, and again something which is fantastic for, from a kenyan perspective is to have the dual mi- migration happening at the same time you know, getting to see the wilderness migrate yeah i mean you alluded to it you know communities um you know i'm always struck by the colour, the dance, the excitement, the environments. Um, and as you say, you know, we live in such a, in our existence, if you talk about it first world perspective, is sort of like what car you drive or what house you live in. Um, and it all becomes so real when you go into these sort of remote villages. And as you say, you know, they 
they they just make it work and they're they're happy they have a great lifestyle they um you know from so little they create so much and it's difficult to not sort of be inspired by right. that kind of environment um but now the rest of the listeners actually realize why yeah, I'm, the- why I'm so jealous of your because you go around and meet all sorts of people and do all sorts of things. <laughs> right, and, and also the, those communities, the fact that they, you know, they've lived in and amongst, especially the, again, those pastoralist nomad tribes, they've lived in and amongst those, the wildlife for millennia and, and continue to do so in a sort of, you know, a, a pretty peaceful coexistence and, 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 and maintaining peace between wildlife and, and themselves. And long may it continue, um, because obviously there's, there are some examples where it's not as perfect, but we're trying to do every bit we can. We're sort of working on a Sabo Trust project, which is a, a, a very living, very, very close to some national park there. Um, okay, Paolo, the last, the last question for you um, is just sort of about advice, I guess. You know, there's a lot of people out there uh, who will be listening to this who are looking to either support, help or get involved in uh, in conservation efforts and obviously with Tafauti our, our main ambition is to sort of give people that avenue um, to be able to support projects that we believe in uh, and we think can make a genuine difference. Um, you know by, by being on the ground here and understanding the, the framework out here and experiencing different projects you'll undoubtedly get to um, get to see what it's all about and, and be able to make your own mind up about which projects to support for one. Um, as, I, as we've said beforehand, traveling, of course, you know, a lot of the cost of travel out here goes towards conservation anyway. So you are, by nature of traveling to these areas, you are actually helping out just by traveling. And that's, that's, that's an important thing to realize. And, and by doing that, just you going home and then educating everyone back home and being able to, to share that passion for, for, um, the, for wildlife and, 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 and for the world will will really help in terms of of spreading that you know at the moment the sort of as, as much as raising funds or getting involved in conservation projects is important one of the most important things is is the is is educating people back home i think we we live in a world out here where we we see a lot of and without getting into too much detail on it a lot of organizations which are very top heavy um based abroad and the the actual tangible benefit on the ground is is very little um i think by getting involved in in sort of smaller style projects which are more hand-on um both will give you an opportunity to perhaps get involved in a practical side but also in terms of fundraising anything you do will go back directly to the project that you're trying to help with and so you know there's so many community um conservation models out here which are incredible in terms of the effect and benefit they have both in terms of community and on wildlife and and specific wildlife based organizations which you know do incredible incredible work on a tutoring budget um you know and and if they had even a tenth or a hundredth of the budget of these bigger organizations the amount of good they can do is is incredible so i mean again you alluded to one just now which was uh, you know the sabo trust you know they're protecting the last hundred pound elephant in in um in Sabo National Park and you know they run on on a pretty small budget but the the you know the work that they do and 
what they they managed to do on a small budget is really impressive. Another one, Local Ocean Trust, which managed to do on a very small budget is is phenomenal. So, yeah, I think definitely those those three things I'd say are are, are key: travel, educate, and then you know if you are going to raise funds. Or- yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, for those of you that did attend the the conservation ball, everyone sort of asks, keeps asking me, you know, what do we do? And I just say, well, come out here, come and see um, and understand, which I guess is kind of uh, aligns uh, directly with you. And then, and then my last message was about do your homework. You know, check people out, uh, assess things, understand a bit more, and then off that basis uh, make informed decisions. Um, and I think we are sort of tangibly moving in that direction naturally where people want value and want to sort of engage in in different levels so I think it is it is positive we're on a we're on a new trajectory for uh, for Tefauti and for of course conservation as a whole Um, Paolo thank you so much uh, for for joining us uh, on the Tefauti pods thank you for your insight thanks Chrissy great to great to chat cheers see you soon I'm Krista Cullen. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to know more about Tefauti and our projects, please do visit us on tefauti.org. T-O-F-A-U-T-I.